Please take out your Bibles. Turn to Psalm chapter 3. Last week, in light of everything that was going on, I didn't think it would be appropriate to continue on with church membership and ignore the one thing that was on everyone's mind. So last week we looked at Psalm chapter 16, and I want to encourage you to keep doing verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. My job, Pastor Mike's job, is to help you all to do that, and we do that with the Word. So one of my prayers for this time is that God would use this to give us a greater appreciation for and dependence upon His Word. Because God's Word is, as Martin Luther said, medicine. He says that God heals His people by means of His precious Word, that there is no better nor more powerful remedy than to diligently read and heed the Word of God. And so God's Word is our remedy, and Jesus calls it our food. And in a time when many people, maybe for the first time, actually have to think about some of these things and consider food and a lack of food, we want to be reminded of Christ's Word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God's Word is medicine, it is food, it heals, and it feeds so we need to very much make sure that our people are cared for and provided for when it comes to physical needs and physical food. Uh, we're, we're working on that. But we also very much need not to forget that this word is the true food that gives true life, spiritual life, eternal life. And so we're, we're going to eat. We want to be edified. We want to be strengthened. And we're going to do that from the Psalms. Decided that we're going to camp in the Psalms for a couple of weeks while this is all kind of going on and people are thinking and obsessed with this one thing, I think the Psalms could be particularly helpful for us right now because for the last 3,000 years, it's been particularly the Psalms that God's people have turned to when there is confusion and they need comfort, when there is suffering and they need salvation. Because from the very beginning, the Psalms have been the church's manual of prayer and of praise for public worship. We've kind of lost a lot of that in our churches today. One of my goals now in turning to the Psalms uh, in these strange and difficult times is to hopefully encourage you to turn to the Psalms in these strange and difficult times. As I hope that we can corporately find great comfort from the Psalms together, though virtually and at a distance, I hope that you'll be encouraged to find great comfort from the Psalms personally. Right, so here's your first application at the very beginning. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms this week. Read them tonight. Read them tomorrow. Read them Tuesday. You have time. Use that time to get in the Psalms. But the church in general in recent years has somewhat neglected the Psalms, and some have pointed out that it is no accident that many people in churches today don't kind of really know how to pray. And there's likely a connection between these two things, because the Psalms are meant to teach us how to pray. They teach us about who God is and how we are to respond and relate to him. And in a time like this, when we desperately need to pray, some time in the Psalms could be a great help to us. And so second application point I'm giving to you at the beginning for you to chew on for the course of the message is, is to pray. That's what David does in the Psalm when faced with 
adversity. So maybe you've already noticed that in this kind of oddly different service, as we're apart from one another, Pastor Mike opened with a call to worship from a psalm. Then he had our scripture reading from a psalm. I'm preaching from a psalm. And then we took extra time to pray. And we're trying to model what it is that we want you to be doing as you face these difficult times. Turn to the Lord in the psalms. Turn to the Lord in prayer. So psalms just means Song. These were composed to be sung. They are both songs and prayers, and they are poetry. The psalms use metaphors. They use images. They, they speak to us in a way that is different than prose does, different than a narrative may do. They move our affections and our emotions, and they inform our minds. They teach us about God. Then they picture for us how beautiful and wonderful and desirable he is. They teach us how to live. And then they picture for us how beautiful and wonderful and desirable that way of life is. But then they also teach us how to mourn. They teach us how to cry. They teach us how to suffer. The Psalms have got it all. Martin Luther calls the Psalms a mini Bible because everything is in them. Uh, the great church father Athanasius uh, writes in a letter to a friend, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but in them you learn the way to remedy your ill. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy for all parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion that is not here represented as in a mirror. All the griefs and sorrows, fears and doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the troubling emotions with which the minds of men are often disturbed are pictured in the Psalms. I want you to go to the Psalms, to you to use them. They contain the words for everything that we feel and experience. They show us how to talk to God and how to relate to him. They show us that we are not the only Christians who have ever faced hard times and suffering, and they show us how to think and feel in such times. In the Psalms, we have a deep, deep well that we would be foolish not to drink from right now. We're going to start today with Psalm 3. We spent a summer in the Psalms a couple of years ago, and I preached through Psalm 1 and 2. I'm going to pick up with Psalm 3 because I think its connection to the first two Psalms has an important word for us today. We'll look at that in point 1. But first, a question for you before we begin to read this Psalm. Consider this. How are you sleeping right now, these days? Have recent events affected your sleep? Because in a sense, Psalm 3 is a sleep test. Maybe you've heard of a sleep test, or they call them sleep studies. I think they sound terrible. I would fail miserably. I'm a very light sleeper. But they, if you put me in a situation like that, strapped up to something, uh, told that I have to sleep because they're to monitor it, I would never sleep. Maybe some of you have taken one of these uh, sleep studies or sleep tests. Well, we can all take one of these this morning with Psalm chapter 3. How is your sleep? How does trouble tend to affect your sleep? How does pandemic and panic affect your sleep? I want us to be encouraged by God's word this morning that no matter the circumstances, we can rest confidently in the Lord. How? I just watch the news. Everything's falling apart. Markets are crashing. There's, there's no toilet paper. How can we rest at a time like these? Well, let's see from God's word. 
Three simple points. I'm going to try to be simpler and shorter since you're watching online. Uh, keep in mind that my shorter is still longer than most people's normal. At least now you can pause me and, and take a break. I don't know if you can pause Facebook Live, but probably you can. Um, so feel free to do that. Um, three points for us this morning. First of all, quite simply, we're going to see that God's people suffer. But we're also going to see that God's people sleep in the midst of suffering. How? It's only because God saves and sustains his people. So those are our circumstances. That's our response to those circumstances because of God with us in those circumstances. So let me read for you first Psalm chapter 3. This is the most important part. Uh, This is where we find our solace, our comfort, our medicine, and our food. Psalm chapter 3. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on all your people. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I am thankful for your word. Help me have confidence that the power is in your word and not my own. Father, help now the preaching of your word. I ask now that you would help the hearing of your word. Father, we are not able to be together. We are spread out in all kinds of different circumstances and different distractions with various levels of anxiety or fear. Father, I ask simply this morning that your word would be a comfort to your people. Father, I cannot do that, but you can. And we ask that you would. Comfort us, encourage us, point us to your Son, Jesus Christ, through your word in this time, we pray. Amen. All right, point number one. God's people suffer. That's verse one. David is crying out to the Lord because he is surrounded by foes. Many foes rising against him, foes. And I want us to start off by seeing the significance of the fact that this is the very first verse after Psalms 1 and 2. So brief review, if you want to look back over chapter 1 and 2, because Psalms 1 and 2 act as a sort of introduction to the whole rest of the book. So let me run through those very briefly to help us understand Psalm 3. Well, why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Why is it first? There has to be a reason, and there is, and it's because it's, it's so important and, and lays out the theme of the 148 Psalms to come. It comes before the great psalms of praise. It comes before the great psalms extolling the mercy and grace of God. It comes before the great recountings of God's wondrous working in the world. It comes before Psalm 23, Psalm 119, everything. Psalm 1 is first, and it is first for a reason. And it's fairly simple, but don't let its simplicity fool you, because this one is of the utmost importance. There are two ways. There are two people, two destinies. And only two. There are no third options. You are either part of the righteous 
or part of the wicked. And by putting this song first, we are being told there is nothing more important than knowing which you are and why and how. Everything that follows in the next 148 Psalms depends first on this. Here is the righteous life. Here is how to live the blessed life. And then the rest of the Psalms are a commentary on that. But first, there is Psalm 2, which is one of the most frequently cited Psalms in the New Testament. And it goes together with Psalm 1. Notice how the last line of Psalm 2 starts. Blessed. Same as the first line of Psalm 1. Blessed. In fact, in Acts 13.33, Paul quotes Psalm 2.7 and says, as it is written in the second Psalm. But we actually have some Greek manuscripts that say, as it is written in the first Psalm. Which seems to imply that maybe there was a time when Psalm 1 and 2 were together as one Psalm as the introduction to this book. So these two are very, very important. They're the foundation for everything that follows. Psalm 1, the righteous, blessed life. Psalm 2, the reign of God's king. And they go together. Psalm 1 is personal, small scale, little picture, you. Psalm 2 is cosmic, large scale, big picture, everyone. Psalm 2 gives us the theological perspective for interpreting world events, for interpreting the entirety of world history, including the coronavirus. Psalm 2 is about God's sovereignty, including the coronavirus. We're going to hit sovereignty and providence at some point soon if this keeps up. But Psalm 2 is about God's rule and his reign. It's about his control over the world and over history and over everything. Psalm 2 is kingship. God reigns. God's king rules in his kingdom. So Psalm 1, life in the kingdom. Psalm 2, the king of the kingdom. First verse, blessing. Last verse, blessed. First verse of Psalm 3, trouble. That's interesting, isn't it? Here's the blessed life. Here's the righteous life. Here's God's sovereign ruling and reigning king. Very first, next verse, trouble. God's people suffer. Seems that God really wants us to get this. Yes, here's the blessed life. Here's the king over the kingdom in which this blessed life is found. But oh, by the way, on the way, you will have trouble. John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation or trouble, some translations say. That's a helpful reminder. And that is actually a kind word to us. We have largely forgotten this fact as comfortable Christians in the West. Praise God for medicine and technology and for a lack of persecution. Let's not minimize that. Let's not develop some sort of strange martyr complex. But let's also not forget that we are to expect such things. We are to expect difficult things. I think at least part of our struggle right now is that we are so shocked and surprised that difficult things are happening. But we shouldn't be. God's people before us have suffered far more than we have and for far longer, and God's people after us will suffer as well. Let's allow God's word to reset our expectations. I keep telling the news, people keep talking about the new normal. Let's allow the Bible to define what normal is. And it tells us from beginning to end that suffering is normal for God's people. And it was for David, and he was the king. 
Uh, look up at the heading above verse 1. There are a number of firsts in Psalm 3. It's the first use of the word psalm itself, first selahs, and first a heading that's giving us the setting. We don't have time to go through the story in great detail, but David is writing this psalm when he is on the run from his own son, Absalom. Maybe go back, use your Lord's Day well today. Go back and read the whole story in 2 Samuel 13 through 18. David is the king, and his own son has risen up against him. His own son in 2 Samuel 15, 6, stole the hearts of the men of Israel and has himself declared the king. And this is so successful. There's such a following. There's such an uprising that David has to flee. David is on the run from his own son. He is surrounded by enemies. He's facing great difficulty, affliction, and suffering. God's people suffer. Praise God. That most of us have faced comparatively little suffering. You've probably never had to flee your home because your son stole your job and was trying to kill you. But right now, we are facing something new for many of us. Things feel like they're on the edge. We may not be surrounded by literal enemies trying to kill us in battle, but we are surrounded by fear and panic. We are maybe surrounded by little unseen enemies that could just as easily take our life. And so we're all trying to figure out how to respond to all of this, which is why we're turning to the Psalms, because so many of the Psalms are God's people wrestling with the reality of suffering. Our situation is not that new and not that strange. Thus, we do not have to reinvent the wheel and figure out how God's people are supposed to respond. We, we have it for us right here. And do you know what part of our response is to be, according to Psalm chapter 3? It's sleep. Look at point number two. God's people sleep. What? How, how is this helpful? What's the big deal with sleep? Now keep in mind David's circumstances. He's literally surrounded by people who want to murder him. He has had to flee his home. He has had to flee Jerusalem and the temple, the special place of the presence of God, the place where God's people gather together to worship God. He is separated from that. He is isolated. He is quarantined. And his life is in constant danger. His response? Look at verses 4 and 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. How's your sleep going? David is surrounded by enemies, and he sleeps. You are surrounded by fear and panic, maybe coronavirus. Can you sleep? God's people sleep. Look over at chapter 4, verse 8. In peace, David says, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm not sure if we're going to do that psalm next week or not. We'll see. But it's another psalm in the context of distress and suffering. And David, yet again, in the midst of all of that, emphasizes that he will lie down and sleep in peace. Circumstances, panic, David, peace. Circumstances, suffering, David, sleep. Do you know one of the main ways that you regularly demonstrate your faith in the Lord? You lay down and you confidently go to sleep. Sleep 
speaks. Sleep is deeply theological. How we sleep says much about us and much about our belief in the Lord. By sleeping, we are relinquishing control and reminding ourselves, at least for a few hours, God doesn't actually need us. If we don't sleep, maybe we are saying, I don't really trust God with my work, my church, my family, with whatever it is. I don't really maybe respect how my creator has made me a body and soul and those things are linked. I don't really need to demonstrate my rest in Christ. I really do maybe still worship some of these idols. Why should I sleep when sleep does nothing to advance my own glory? If I can't sleep, maybe it's a sign that I don't quite trust the Lord as much as I say that I do. Listen, I'm preaching to myself here, I am not a great sleeper. Uh, this is a hard thing for me to sleep. I almost took Zequil last night. It's like, I'm preaching on Psalm 3. I can't take Zequil tonight because i got to go sleep, right? I, right? I don't need it. I'm just, I'm just a light sleeper. Neighbors next door uh, are loud. Kid cries out in another room. Melissa rolls over and elbows me, and I'm instantly awake. It takes me a long time to get back to sleep. So I'm just a light sleeper. But sometimes I can't sleep, maybe because I'm anxious, because I'm thinking, because I can't stop cycling through that one conversation or can't stop running through what may happen in that one situation in the future. Sometimes I can't sleep because my mind is not at rest and my mind is not at rest in part because I still stubbornly cling to the lie that I am in control and that maybe God really isn't. Maybe he's not as sovereign as I'm constantly preaching. Maybe he's not as perfectly good. That's what I'm saying when my mind won't let me sleep because I'm anxious, worried, or afraid. So we've all been there. And David's been there, too. You actually see it over in chapter 6, verse 6. You'll see David struggle at night with sleep. You'll see Asaph struggle with it in Psalm 77, verse 4. So let's be honest and upfront. Sometimes God's people will struggle with sleep. And maybe that's you right now. But my encouragement is that that is not how it is meant to be, because it is the nature of God's people to sleep. Why is that? How is that? And what do you do if you do find yourself struggling to sleep? Point number three. It is the nature of God's people to sleep only because it is the nature of God to save and sustain his people. That's what our sleep is saying and preaching. That's what the sleep here in this psalm represents. Look at verse 5 again. He lay, he slept, and he woke again for, here's the reason why, for the Lord sustained me. So this God, Yahweh, is a sustaining God. He sustains his people. David is confident in sleep because he is confident in God. Look back at verse 3. This is why and how David can sleep. And this is why and how you can sleep, no matter how bad it gets. It is because, verse 3, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. As here's why theology is so important. Here's why sleep is deeply theological. Because both how you live and how you sleep are a reflection of what you believe about God. And David can sleep surrounded by enemies because he's more importantly surrounded by God. That's what a shield is and does. And if you can remember back just a few weeks ago to Genesis 15, man, that seems like a really long time ago, doesn't it? 
Uh, but remember, God's making his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. He's binding himself to Abraham. He's promising that he will be his God and that Abram will be his people because that's what covenant is about. God with us and us with God. And the first thing that God says to Abram in verse 1 is, Fear not, Abram. Why not? Because I am your shield. Fear not, because I am. God is Abram's Shield. God is David's shield. And in Christ, God is your shield. And this is a theme that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Why? It's because of point number one. Because they understood that God's people suffer. That there is danger. There are enemies. There are viruses. There is such a thing as death. But praise God, there is also shield. And he tells us that he himself is that shield. And this probably hasn't been a metaphor that too many of us have been too concerned with or excited about in the past because many of us have lived our lives in relative ease and safety. But now all of a sudden, it at least seems like something may be threatening that. We'll go here. Right? Run to your refuge. Remember, we saw that last week in chapter 16, verse 1. In you, I take refuge. It's also in 5.11 and 7.1 and many other places in the Psalms. God as refuge, a place of safety and security, a place of protection from danger and harm and enemies. Where are you turning right now for refuge? Is it your social distancing or your self-quarantine or your hoard of toilet paper or in the government to take care of things? Or is your refuge a place of distraction like social media or Netflix? Where are you running? Where is your refuge? You have one. Do you know what it is? Listen to Luther again. When he, this is a, a random spot where he's writing on the first commandment. He says this. A God is that to which we look for all and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe it with our whole heart. So whatever it is that you turn to and look to for refuge in your time of need is your God. So where do you turn right now for safety? What makes you feel Confident and secure. What, what allows you to sleep? Ooh, great opportunity right now to discern what your God really is. And my prayer is that part of what God will do with this whole thing is to call his people back to him. To use this to knock out some of those other refuges that we, turn, we tend to turn to and flee to and find security in. And to show us that there is no refuge there. Not in our government, not in our money, not in our health, not in anything else, but only in God and God alone. He is the refuge and the shield of his people. Scripture really wants you to get this. Look over at Psalm chapter 18. I love verses 1 and 2 of Psalm chapter 18. Look at those. Psalm 18, 1 and 2. Look at all the ways God is described as protection and safety. I love you, O Lord. I love you. Name. Here's the name. I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh, the Lord, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's ten. 
That's ten different metaphors, all conveying the basic same idea that God is a place and person of protection and safety. I love those verses. Use those verses. Run to those verses. Run to the Lord as your only refuge. He is your shield. And I don't have to explain what a shield is. But if you really think about it, consider this. What is a shield? A shield is a substitute. A shield stands between you and your enemies, and it takes the arrows and the blows that were meant for you. The shield absorbs the death that was aimed at and directed at you. That's what God says he is for David. He's his shield, his glory, the one who lifts his head. And that's why David can sleep, because he knows his God. He knows the nature of his God. It is the nature of his God to sustain his people. And so David confidently rests in that. David sleeps because God sustains. Listen to Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We sleep because God doesn't sleep. Everybody else sleeps. Presidents sleep. The CDC sleeps. Talking heads, thankfully, uh, sleep. They should sleep more. Everyone sleeps except for God. And so in laying ourselves down to sleep, we are expressing our trust and our confidence in him. In turning off the news, we are expressing our trust and our confidence in him. And not getting worked up and worried, we are expressing our trust and our confidence in him. In caring for one another, no matter what. When the world says, oh, don't go out ever or you'll die. No, we're expressing our trust and our confidence in him. Because he sustains us. Again, Mike said it. It's not a promise of physical protection, um, but he sustains us and he saves us. Notice how the end of verse 2 is answered by verse 8. David has enemies. They surround him. They mock him, saying, there is no salvation for him in God. And so that accusation kind of leaves us at the conclusion of this first section, asking the very question, well, does God deliver? Can God deliver? Does this God really save? Maybe you're wondering that right now. Well, verse 8 specifically answers that question. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We sleep because he saves. Christians sleep uh, because he already has saved. And there is no greater lesson that anyone can learn than the lesson of verse 8. Eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you understand what that really means? Do you understand how big that is? It means first, if you are ever going to be saved, it must be a work of God and God alone. Banish any foolish notion that you had anything to do with your salvation. Banish any foolish notion of your great free will that has the goodness and the power to choose God and and in so doing contributed something to your own salvation. It is His work. It belongs to Him. He owns it and He does it. Salvation is His. And He saves His people always. And He does it, we know, in the most remarkable way. Remember the metaphor that He's giving David here, that that God is shield. You are a shield about me. A shield is a substitute. And that becomes wonderfully and literally true in the person 
and the work of Jesus Christ. I, I, I guess it could sound silly and cliche, but it shouldn't. If we actually believe what we say we do, right? if God's word is actually true, then there, is, there just is a virus eternally worse than COVID-19, as, as bad as that is. We are afraid of that right now. All the attention of the world is on that right now. And again, I understand that. Yet, there is still no fear of sin. No attention given to the seriousness of our terminal sin sickness. For the wages of sin is death. Spiritual sin. Eternal death. But God. But God has shielded us. From that, in Christ, God has absorbed the very death that we rightly owed for our sin himself. He saved us from his own wrath by substituting in our place his own son so that we could be shielded and saved. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As that's, that's the gospel. That's the good news of what God has done for us. That's what it means that salvation belongs to him. That we contribute nothing but the sin that requires the son to come and die for us. But that God comes and does everything for us anyways. He solves our sin sickness. He saves us from eternal death and hell. And instead gives us eternal life and himself forever. And you know what can't touch that? Oh, everything. Anything. Nothing can touch that. But that nothing includes this virus and economic collapse and panic and whatever else. And this is why we do not fear. While everyone around us is panicking, God's people don't panic. And it's because of the gospel. It's because as frightening as physical sickness and death is, we know that in Christ, that has been completely and utterly neutralized, neutered, uh, defeated for us. We know that spiritual life has already been secured and nothing physical can touch that. And so I want to encourage you that whatever our circumstances, and some of them aren't great right now, maybe they will become dire. I don't know. I'm still hoping they don't. But no matter how bad your physical or financial circumstances, they do not even register on the scale of importance when it comes to your spiritual circumstances, when it comes to the welfare and well-being of your soul. How is your soul? Listen, we're going to do everything. I'm talking with Henry. I'm talking with Mike. I'm talking with other people. We're going to do everything we can to meet the, meet the physical needs of our people and to care for our people. And we must do that. We are called to do that. But to do that and neglect the spiritual needs of our people is to utterly miss the point. I got really frustrated. I probably should say this. There was one pastor online like, mocking other pastors who were going to spend their time this week preparing to preach uh, God's word uh, to people virtually because he was going to feed the, the poor and he was going to go out and engage the community. I said, you don't understand what a pastor is. You don't understand what the word is. It's good to give people food and save their bodies. But let's also give people the word and the gospel, in hopes that God will save their souls. How is your soul? How is your sleep? Is it the peaceful sleep of a soul sustained and saved by the Lord? If not, if you're having a hard time with this, well, what do you do? Well, here's your application. Last, last thing, and I'll be done. 
Well, you do what David does when he is surrounded by trouble. Look at verse 4. Because God sustains and saves, here's how David responds. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Church, pray. This is so simple. Please pray. Trouble drives Christians to prayer. God is our shield and our refuge. Prayer is how we flee to him. As a pastor, I guarantee Mike can vouch for this. I don't know how many times I hear people tell me that, you know, it's a really hard time just reading their scripture, they're reading the, doing their Bible reading and, and, and praying because they're just, they're just so busy. Right? They just don't have time. You're not so busy now. Let's see if that's the actual reason. This is the test. Are you using your extra time now to get with the Lord in his word and in prayer? If not, don't use that excuse anymore. I want to encourage you to take these psalms as prayer patterns and then pray them. When those little fears and anxieties start to creep up, don't turn on the news, don't complain on social media, pray. If you think about it, that's what prayer is, in a sense. It is sinful and folly to complain about the Lord. It is salvation and faith to complain to the Lord. That's what prayer is. We frequently see in the Psalms God's people complaining to God. Never about God. Don't forget that he's sovereign. If he's as sovereign as Scripture says, if he orders and ordains and directs everything that happens, that means to complain about those things, to complain about your circumstances, again, ultimately to complain about him. Don't do that. Pray. Do what David does when surrounded by trouble. Do verse Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is your hope. This is the way out of your situation. This is the only way you can face whatever adversity or affliction uh, faces you. Call out to the Lord who is your shield. Call out to the Lord who has saved you. Life is often bad, but God is always good. God's people do suffer, but they can sleep because God saves and sustains them. That's, That's Psalm Three. And so Psalm 3 then solves for us what Martin Lloyd-Jones brilliantly, I think, calls the great problem of life. What does he say is the great problem of life? It says how to lay oneself down to rest and to sleep. It's how to have true peace. How can you actually have peace in a time like this? Well, Psalm 3 tells you only in the Lord. Only in the God who is your shield and your refuge. Only in the promise of this Lord who sustains and saves his people. So turn to that Lord by turning to the Psalms and by calling out to him in prayer. If you would bow with me, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves his people. We thank you that you are also the God who speaks to his people. Father, we don't need other words from you because you have given us your word. And it is living and active. Father, it saves, it sanctifies, it challenges, it encourages. Father, I ask now that your word would be an encouragement to your people. Father, I pray for um, my brothers and sisters um, who uh, I am away from and separated from. And Father, I am sad about that. Um, I miss 
my brothers and sisters of Woodside Community Church. Father, I pray that you would bring us back together soon. I pray that you would bring an end to this so that your people can gather together. Father, I pray that we would be greatly thankful for the gift of technology, that we can uh, still talk with one another, that the word can still be preached and proclaimed uh, through um, all these amazing things that you have given us. But I pray also at the same time that people would feel and experience uh, a distinct feeling of dissatisfaction. Father, remind us that you cannot do church at home and that you cannot do church by yourself and that it is not church to listen to a message. And so, Father, we miss being together and we long for the time when we can gather again. And so we pray for an end to this soon. We pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that we would encourage one another and edify one another and care for one another um, in unique ways in this unique time. But Father, more importantly, I ask um, that you would make it possible for us again to be together, uh, to be your church gathered, Lord, worshiping you uh, together, loving one another in person. Um, Father, we need great wisdom right now, and so I ask that you would give it to us. Father, I ask for those among us who are anxious and who are nervous. I pray that nothing I said would belittle those fears. I pray that you would turn and encourage them uh, with your word. And Father, help us to see the infinite confidence uh, that we can have in you, especially because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us to solve our sin problem and to save us um, from the one thing that could separate us from you. So fathers, comfort us and encourage us with that great hope. I ask and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.